Good morning. As Brother Pat said, we're in Hebrews chapter 6 again. Looking this morning at verse 12, you might notice that verse 12 is a really just a continuation of what we looked at last week in verse 11 as the, the thought from the penman as given to him under inspiration of the Holy Spirit uh, is building upon those principles and those ideas and this better estimate, if you will, that has been presented in the weeks previous. And so we begin uh, again looking at verse 12, but we'll start there in verse 9. It says, But beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you, things that are to accompany salvation, though we are speaking in this way, for God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love with, <coughs> excuse me, which you have shown toward his name and having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end so that you will not be sluggish but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit promises very easy to see as we make it to verse 12 that verse 11 although seemingly wonderful uh, reminder that it may be this desire as it says for each one of you to show diligence and to realize the full assurance of hope there seems to be with the second half of that sentence that begins with verse 12 an even greater realization that may be and I believe that that must be the case that uh, although we sometimes look at biblical things in uh, a perspective that is less than full, uh, I believe that verse 12 declares that there is something even more wonderful than desiring and even more wonderful than diligence and even maybe more wonderful than the assurance of hope. And I think that the key to that is that the assurance of hope is until the end and that end is really the beginning of eternity. In fact, that is the perspective that we must look at every line and every jot and every tittle of Scripture that we look at it with the perspective of eternity, the perspective of a holy triune God that is and was and for shall ever be, just as the Christ has declared himself, just as God has declared Christ the Son throughout the epistle to the Hebrews and this morning we will see how wonderful the continuation of verse 11 really is I want to begin looking uh, after prayer uh, that we would continue to see Christ in these scriptures that we would continue uh, to see not merely a mortal perspective but that of eternal beings who have been saved and who have been ransomed by the blood of Christ so as we uh, enter into the time of prayer I would ask that you uh, consider eternity and that you would consider uh, the weightiness of heaven and the weightiness of hell and even if that be a perspective for you that hell may certainly be a consequence because you have yet to repent and to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ consider how worthless we are for salvation but how worthy Christ is in his blood to be that propitiation if you would consider those things and join me in prayer. Father God, as we look at your word, 
Lord, we look to see what it may testify of our Savior, Lord. And we know that uh, apart from apart from uh, your holiness and apart from your righteousness, Lord, and uh, apart from that which you would impute to us and reveal to us, Lord, there is no uh, understanding of such a magnificent revelation. There is no comprehension of such a wonderful Savior, Lord. And we just ask today that because Christ has defeated death and because Christ has risen as we just sang, Lord, that we may uh, see the beautiful truths of that resurrection, that we may see, Lord, his commitment to the Father, Lord, his commitment to righteousness, and that uh, by him and by his indwelling spirit, Lord, that we may be changed and we may be conformed, Lord, that we may, like the text has borne out over these past few weeks, that we may press on to maturity, Lord, that we would uh, move on to better things and that we would hope for better things and that, Lord, at the end of that hope that we would realize face-to-face the beautiful Savior, Lord, that we may behold his glory uh, as Moses wished to but could not, Lord. We just ask that you would grant that to us, Lord, that we may be as he patient, Lord, to count and to by faith trust upon the Savior, Lord, as we know that he has done the completed work on Calvary's cross. Lord, we just thank you for that uh, propitiation. Lord, we thank you for forgiveness and for, uh, Lord, a, a lifestyle of repentance that is made available only uh, by your conforming us to the image of your Son. Lord, we just ask that that be the case today, Lord, that we be sanctified by the Word, that we be, as we read on Wednesday night, Lord, uh, exhorting one another and encouraging until that day comes that we may live by faith, Lord, and not by sight, but we may also as well have a certain hope in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. So verse 12, uh, and I want to repeat verse 11, and we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end so that you will not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Now, there is a, a, a great exhortation even in those words. There's a great encouragement. While there is encouragement, there is also the viewpoint to which we see that there is a failure to do these things. And verse 11 uh, really declares that, that there are some, some things that we are not doing that we should do. And verse 12 is declaring why we should do them and why we should separate from the old way. It says, we desire, and we looked last week, and we saw that that we was, or was conclusive of those who are also as well saved, the apostles and the disciples, fellow saints. This should be the perspective that we have to care for one another. And then it says to realize the full assurance. What does that also mean? It also means that we have yet to realize those things, that there is even more hope to be had. There's even more assurance to be uh, taken in and to be rested upon, that we can trust in the finished work of Christ, that we may trust in the Word of God, that we may know that nothing is beyond the reach or the grasp of God, that everything is in His hand. And really what this is telling us is that no sinner this side of heaven has yet to realize the full sovereignty of God, 
to realize the full magnificence of God, the powerfulness of God. And this has uh, really been an inspiration for me for a sermon that I'm looking forward to upon the power of God, upon the power of godliness even in so much as that it relies completely upon him. So as we look at the verse, you'll see that verse 12 begins in this way, so that you, so that you, and it should be speaking on first an individual level, but then more completely upon the body of Christ as one who is unified, as we read this morning in Acts, that has all things in common, so that you will not be, so that you, church, so that you, beloved of God, so that you, chosen of the Father, those of you elect before the earth was ever created, before the beast, before the birds of the air and the creatures of the sea, you who have been predestined, you whom have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, you who are now regenerate were once dead, you who are in layman's terms saved by the grace of God, you who are named church, we desire that you, followers of Christ, you who are as well named in the latter part of the verse, imitators, you who have began to seek Christ and who will continue to seek after Christ. You have begun to do spiritual warfare against sin and the powers of the air. Here is a great representation of everything that we must be as the body of Christ in this simple phrase, so that you leaves no sinner saved by grace out and includes no one who is not to know the Christ. This means that this is reserved to this perspective in verse 12 for those who truly believe. This is the attitude that you must have. This is the instruction for one who is truly saved so that you, then it goes on, will not be. Why, why does the Bible ever say so that you will not be? Or so that you may do this. It's because we have the natural propensity to do that which is opposite. Why do I say that? Because if we think that we have conformed completely, if we think that we have reformed completely, we have made very little of the work of Christ, the ongoing work. We have made very little of salvation. We have made very little of sin. In fact, we have taken a perspective of righteousness which is anything but holy because we think that we have sanctification, complete perfection. When indeed uh, men such as Paul and men such as Peter and and all of the beloved brothers to come before us who now are in heaven would and should declare that sin is rampant, that it is always present this side. Long as the mortal body lives, there is that which we have hope, that which we must press forward to, that which we do not have, but we may in Christ Jesus have. 
Simply put, when it says, so that you will not be, this is to draw from it an inference that is opposite that of the natural man. That of the natural man, that is, that has been given to sin. The natural man who has experienced sin, who has taken part in sin, who has enjoyed sin. The foregone foregone conclusion of the man without the permanent bond to Christ. That is what this is speaking about. One should not and one will not be if he but has Christ. For the unconverted man will, the unconverted man must remain in a state of depravity by which his end is guaranteed in death and hell and eternal torment. That is what awaits those who deny the lordship of Jesus Christ, those who deny the saving power of the Christ. But on the other hand, to desire diligence, spiritual striving is present. How can that be? Well, God must give us that. As we read, and I'll bring it up again later in the sermon, there is a a lifestyle of habitual repentance. I was pleased this morning to hear Brother Pat remind me that he is already in a repentant state this morning. It should be so with every believer, not just uh, merely once a week or twice a week, but it should be so that we remain. In fact, it says, so that you will not be because currently you are. Some form or fashion opposite to what the text will present. You somehow are sluggish. You somehow lack the imitation of Christ and the imitation of the saints before you. You somehow lack full faith and full patience and you somehow yet are not trusting and waiting on the promises of God like you should be. Isn't that the reason that we're here? One, to glorify God, but ultimately we must glorify, and as saints of the Lord, we must press on because we yet to have trust as we should. We have yet to realize the full assurance that is guaranteed by God in the person of Christ by such verses as what we read this morning. The unconverted man does not understand these things. The unconverted man remains in such a state, fallible, sinful, iniquitous. The unregenerate man desires not to conform to the image of the Son. But on the other hand, we are to look after these things, to desire these things, to, uh, in a righteous sense, be jealous over these things for they are holy for they are profitable for man not just for the body but as well for the soul a striving demands here it demands leaving sin behind you know how difficult it is for someone to preach that these days coming to the end as we will see Hebrews presented it at the time that Christ had taken on human flesh as a baby. We began to see that the end times are at hand. There is 
a point in time and that we may not understand while we're in the midst, but there's a point in time that we can see by the risen Christ at which he came into the world and the end came near. This is that time, and here we must see that there must be a leaving of sin. Why? Because sin simply cannot go where we are to go. God will not have it. We should not have it. In fact, mentioned it before, if you're to be a basketball player or football player, a pianist or any number of accomplished professionals, you practice what you wish to be. For those who are holy, who wish to be holy, we must practice battling with sin. Striving demands that we leave sin behind. In fact, I believe that uh, the words of God are so present in Matthew chapter 8, verse 22, when he says, let the dead bury the dead. Do we see the emphasis of that? The, it wasn't that, no, we need to be on time, we need to do this. The emphasis here is not that family is more important than spirituality. The emphasis cannot be anything other than let the dead bury the dead. Such a statement we see, it's not specifically speaking about mortal man, but it's speaking about even those who are spiritually dead. Why? Because that's more important. What is eternal is more important than that which is temporal. And when God says these things in Matthew chapter 8, verse 22, we see that man is not excused and nor is he permitted to skirt his calling to righteousness. This is the very same excuse that we have from uh, sinners who profess and merely profess in the church today. Well, I believe in Christ, but, you know, I've got time to work on these other things. Or maybe the exact opposite in some form that, I'll come to church after I work on these things, after I battle some sin, after I get rid of some stuff. And Christ is saying, that is not possible. You are called to duty and you are called today to it. Let the dead bury the dead means that we cannot, we cannot find our way around our calling. In fact, it's a calling to perfect righteousness therefore the call is actually today be ye perfect as i am perfect what does that mean it means we can of course no longer be sluggish we can no longer look like the old tim or the old charlie or the old barber or the old nathan we must begin to look immediately to the savior and like the savior how can that be well, the answer is that contrary to what the flesh of man presents, we must be proactive. Christians are called to action. King James here says, so that you will not be slothful, so that you will not be inactive, so that you will not be quote-unquote, retired so that you will not become dull of hearing, so that you will not be a vacationing 
Christian. Any number of reasons or excuses by which we hear on the weekly basis, right? The text is saying there is no time like the present. Today is the day of salvation. Tomorrow is not guaranteed. Youthfulness is no guarantee of old age. And there may not be another chance. Today, we must begin to look like Christ. Don't be slothful. Don't be falling asleep. More importantly, don't be falling away, which is exactly how chapter 6 has described it in weeks previous. None of these are acceptable. None of these are okay. God is not looking at you saying, okay, you can have a week off from looking like a Christian. You can have a week off from doing what is right. You can have a day off from doing what I have called you to do. In fact, on the contrary, he says, there is rest and it is to come in Christ. It is not today. Today is the day of laboring. Today is the day that you work hard. That is what Hebrews has presented thus far. None of these things are acceptable. Unless, somehow, we are of faulty perception that the Christian commended to do a spiritual battle should somehow allow his sword to become dull. We make that excuse. Professing Christians everywhere make this excuse. We have a faulty perception that says, you know what? It's okay if the sword becomes a little dull. It's okay if the word is a little lacking. It's okay if my life is a little slothful. Make excuses. We have, uh, in some ways, especially in Western culture, acceptable sins. Sins that we view as so small as to not give them any attention. In fact, the dullness of the sword comes from the dullness of our hearing. How can that be? One, it's because, first and foremost, that what we are hearing is not preaching of Christ. For it is, if it is, is preaching fully of Christ, then it most certainly is sharp. But if it's less than Christ, if it is man-centered, if the gospel is watered down or altered in any way of course it is a dull word therefore the hearing must be dull but the other problem lies with self it it lies uh, with man so much that we must be introspective and look and say okay is the word being preached yes the word is being preached is the gospel present yes is christ exalted yes am i hearing sharply for many the answer no this is dull hearing Dull of hearing becomes quickly slack of doing. And then even more quickly, lack of following. Text says, we desire that you show diligence. We desire that you realize this full assurance of hope. We desire that you not be sluggish. We desire that you do be imitators. And that you do through faith and patience inherit the promises a lot different perspective when we consider the word in those terms otherwise we may only see here that 
the spiritual swords which we yield, the spiritual weapon that is for the eternal soul and for the glory of God, we see that it must be readily sharpened, constantly maintained. You can tell a lot about a man by borrowing his pocket knife. Some have dull knives and some love to keep sharp blades. Why is that? The answer in a greater, higher spiritual meaning is that dull knife is, in fact, no knife at all. Dull hearer is no hearer at all. One who is maintaining his blade, sharpening his sword, who is attentive to the word of God, and of course because of that, the person of Christ, he is ready for battle. Why is that important? Not because the battle is coming, but because the battle is at hand. The Christian is battling even now. There is a battle even today for the souls of man. It doesn't stop just because you come in these doors as we've uh, seen great spiritual battles here in these walls. Most certainly outside the Christian is commended to do spiritual battle. He's commissioned to do spiritual battle. And let me just say this, although we don't like to look into those terms, he has been well paid. The Christian has been well paid. Given the precious blood of the Lamb to have forever, to guarantee, to solidify eternal life Christ has paid. We must be constantly maintaining our weapons as well as our armor. Cannot afford to be sluggish, lest we then as well be perceived as those who have indeed fallen away that have been presented in weeks past. This is a call to be wholeheartedly given to Christ, church so that you will not be sluggish, so that you will be part of a working infantry, a victorious army, so that you will be long to the king. Isn't that an interesting perspective? We must be given to Christ, who himself is and was and is to remain without error, completely given to the Father, completely given to those who are His, like husband to his bride, Christ is to the church. We must focus on the end, the place of the prize, the seat where the victors find rest from a, from a race worth entering. Why would you need rest if you have yet to battle? Why would you need the word if you're already perfect? The answer is that you are not sharp. I am not sharp. We have not attained the power, the pleasure of Christ like we will. The answer is here in the word it says, we desire these things and they sound good and they sound wonderful and we're like, yes, full assurance of hope. Until the end, diligence, yes, we've got them. 
But guess what? That's not the end game. Verse 12 declares that we attain these things. We realize full assurance until the end. We show diligence until the last day for a purpose so that we're working so that we do not become lazy. We're practicing righteousness so that we do not declare war against God, so that we do not sin against God. We're looking for this full assurance of hope, this diligence in Christ, so that we will be instead imitators because we have yet to look like Christ. There's the wonderful part about glory, glory that we have yet to see fully, have yet to obtain in the greatest fashion or representation. In fact, it is in Christ. We must focus there at the end, which is the beginning of forever. Of course, again, if this is the action of Jesus Christ to do these things, to not be sluggish, to work, to be diligent as he was, to be a promise keeper, then we too must imitate this. Stands to reason that the second half of the verse here, 12, that backs up what is being said in 11, that puts 11 into perspective, if this is the case, it stands to reason that it calls us to be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit promises as it says, and that we may find ourselves worthy. The real truth is that even these who are described here that come before us, they are only worthy of imitation if they themselves have forever, completely, totally commended their life to imitating the only begotten. When it says be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit promises, it's saying because they have seen it firm to the end, because they now have reached the level of the fullness of the glory of God, they have beheld now face to face the Savior. That which you have yet to do, imitate those who have received now the prize. There are those before us who have. Maybe loved ones, maybe parents. For some people, children. There is something better that we must work, not for in the sense to obtain, but work for because we love the Christ whom we work for. We love the Christ who has saved us, who has redeemed us. And this stands to reason by what we read in verse 12. This is, in fact, verse 12, a warning like many verses, against carnality. I've often come across men who were many years into their Christian walk and yet still do not have a grasp of carnality. They think that carnality is a way that is possible for the believer. In fact, Paul says, I speak to you as if you were carnal. He's saying, you look like it. You're supposed to be imitating Christ, and right now you're imitating something less, something more fleshly, something less desirable, something more temporal. 
But he's saying we cannot remain carnal. The truth is that the likes of these deny sanctification. Consider these verses. 2 Peter chapter 2. Suffering wrong as the wages of wrongdoing. They counted a pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are stains and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions, and they carouse with you, having eyes full of adultery, never ceased from sin, enticing unstable souls, having a heart trained in greed, accursed children, forsaking the right way. They have gone astray, having following the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. Does that sound like an imitator of Christ? Does that sound like even an imitator of those Christian brothers in faith before us? Absolutely not. Carnality is part of the nature of a sinful man. Whereas by and being saved and through the obedience of baptism, the symbolism of that, we are identifying with the righteousness of Christ. We are identifying with putting off the old and living anew, not unto self, but as Christ. It is not I who lives. First John chapter 2, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not from the Father but it's from the world. Right here, the Bible is declaring that if you are sluggish, if you are not an imitator, if you do not have full assurance of hope or at least moving in that direction, then you are not of the Father. You are of the world. You may have, in fact, been with us for some time, but not of us, not truly. With us, but not of us. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. For this I say, brethren, the time has been shortened, so that from now on those who have wives should be as though they had none, and those who weep as though they did not weep, and those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice, and those who buy as though they did not possess, and those who use the world as though they did not make full use of it. For the form of this world is passing away. There is a guarantee. There is a promise to be had. Not looking good for the carnal. Looking wonderful for the righteous, those redeemed by the Lamb of God. Romans chapter 12, do not be conformed to this world. Again, a, a warning against the things that are mentioned in these verses. And yet, back in verse 9, it says, But, beloved, we're convinced of better things, for you are still fleshly. For since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly? And are you not walking like mere men? You are appearing to be something other than the church, Corinth. That is what 1 Corinthians chapter 3 is saying there. You are imitating not Christ yet. There's a level of immaturity. Nothing is good coming from your behavior. In Romans chapter 8, For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. It doesn't say that this is a possibility. 
It doesn't say that, okay, maybe you won't be sluggish. Maybe you'll be a better imitator of Christ. It is guaranteeing, look at Romans again, those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. Not possibly, but certainly. Certainly. Galatians chapter 5, for you were called to freedom. Only do not turn your freedom to an opportunity for the flesh. But through love, serve one another. Where is the service? Where is the love? Second Timothy chapter 3, which we'll, we'll cover in sometime in the near future, should the Lord permit. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure, rather than lovers of God, and we have the nerve to ask, are we in the last days? Who hasn't seen that just yesterday? Every word on the list. Who doesn't think himself in some ways sluggish, some ways lacking? But instead, the penman here is exhorting us to trust in Christ, to press on, to continue to minister, to be diligent, to be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Those who inherit promises what is it about patience and faith that is so wonderful well we read it just this past week abraham's righteousness how did it come through faith how shall righteousness come if we are not imitating and we are not engaged in patience faith love for one another in service to christ also read just a week or so ago in Matthew in our morning reading for the morning sermon. Matthew, servant who owed much, he fell on his knees, chapter 18, verse 26, imploring this king, have patience with me and I'll repay you everything king had mercy man quickly leaves and the scene progresses and he goes to the one who owes him another servant and his answer is please just have patience with me this fellow servant and the man would not what was he lacking imitating those who were patient what is it about abraham's faith that made it so wonderful. Well, one, of course, he was guaranteed eternal life because he was trusting in Christ, but it was most certainly out of uh, many men that we could think of much more patient than us, right? Now we have seen and have read and have heard and have felt and have witnessed the Christ before us, written these very books, spoken of, testified of throughout history, and we can't devout ourselves even for but a moment. 
And here is Abraham before Christ ever has taken flesh. Patient, faithful, trusting. Romans also says this about God and his faithfulness and his patience. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and the forbearance and patience? Not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. What is the the subject of that sentence? It says, riches of kindness and forbearance and patience. What does it do? It leads you to repentance. When the word here is calling us to imitate those of faith and those of patience, it's saying, listen, be sure in your faith of Christ. Be reassured. Have full assurance. But most importantly, trust in this with patience because that produces repentance. Repentance is sorrowfulness over sin, turning from sin, battling with that sharp sword. What is important about patience? It's because it is constantly bringing that habitual lifestyle. One of faith that is full of repentance. But those, Romans chapter 2, verse 7, who by patience and well-doing seek for the glory and honor of immortality, he will give eternal life. Patience is not the last fruit that you have to get to prove that you're a Christian. It must be. These are the fruits, the only fruits, the needful fruits that must have fruit belonging to Christ and being grafted in to that particular vine, to having eternal life. This is what real fruit of the Spirit is. Chapter 9, verse 22, What if God, desiring to show His wrath and make known His power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. What if? What if it's true? What if it's a reality? If he is patient, how much more was, must we be? In fact, when we summarize and bring all of this together so that you will not be sluggish, but imitators, those who through faith and patience inherit the promise Diligence is meant in verse 11 to simply produce something. Diligence is not for diligence's sake. Diligence is not for works righteousness. Diligence is not some checklist that you may mark off your penance to God. Diligence cannot simply and erroneously be understood and comprehended as a work to be completed isn't merely part of our to-do list, isn't merely part of what we must do in order to obtain righteousness. Instead, diligence is regarded as something that produces twofold results. Diligence produces what we need, what we must have. First, foremost, Christ was diligent to do the work of the Father. For if that diligence was not there, nothing comes from anything forward. No salvation, no repentance, no forgiveness, no heaven for you and I. But in 
the the more minor scheme of things, the more practical sense as we look, it produces twofold results. And that is a, a series of results that are mutually inclusive, meaning both must be there, present, together. The first being that which we saw last week. One, assurance of hope. What does it do? What does diligence do? It produces assurance of hope. When? Until the end. Lasting. Not just any hope, but uh, a morally potent and powerful and permanent hope. One that stays until we no longer hope and we now see. But lastly, it is a hope that doesn't fade, it doesn't waver, steadily increasing as the text presents it in verse 11 until the end of the age in which we saw that the world is passing away in which Hebrews declare uh, it shall be folded up like a garment and then there will be a new heaven and a new earth and then so we have that first result and then secondly and lastly the result that we have during the increasing of said hope is sanctification. What is the word doing? What is imitating Christ doing? What is patience, faith doing? It's sanctifying. Change from the inside out. Word here says, we desire that you show the same diligence that is declared from verses 9 to verses 10 because it produces these results that is assurance of hope and sanctification, Christ-likeness, an ability to imitate because we have been like-minded with our Savior. Conformity, purity, righteousness, good works, more efficient and more effective labor for the king and the kingdom. Consider that as a last basis, that it is producing these results that are more efficient and more effective. What do I mean? Well, if you're a Christian, you're serving Jesus Christ the King, right? Everything that you do is to be done as if it was unto the Lord. And what we realize is we're on His clock, so to speak, this side of heaven. We are on His clock, and the work that we are doing is sometimes not efficient, and most time not effective. But when we are diligent, when we are full of hope, when we can rest assured, when we are trusting in Christ, all of a sudden uh, the things of the world, as Jimmy likes to say so many times, they pass away and they are set aside and we have our eyes upon the cross and our eyes upon our Savior and because of that, the work that we do, we don't place so much emphasis on our way is the right way or our way is the perfect way, but we're full of grace following Christ, having that light mind. We're full of patience, and that makes us efficient. Efficient Christian is for the glory of God also an effective laborer. Catch more flies with Honey than vinegar, right? That is the answer to the question. What is the better estimate giving us 
given us, excuse me, in chapter 6 of Hebrews is that there is something better, there is a better way, and it is to look like Christ and to be like Christ and to be less like self. Indeed, we have been called through saving faith to serve the living and ever-living God. In fact, the better estimate is not simply eternal life. It is to know Christ more. It is to love Christ more. It is to be confused with Christ. Wouldn't that be magnificent? If the world could somehow at times, not in an idolatrous way, but uh, in a respectful, righteous way, confuse us with Christ. Wouldn't we be uh, loved, rather, to be lumped into that category? To without a word, without a conversation, or without a Facebook page, or maybe a t-shirt that says something, or a, a special car tag, or a decal, love to be known and associated with the Savior. Here is the way. In fact, He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. And it is declared in Hebrews chapter 6, we have not another moment. Let the dead bury the dead. Let the living walk with the living. Let's pray. Father, as we come before you once again, Lord, we just thank you that the Savior is the pinnacle of everything that we read. God, that without him, we know no text may even be partially understood. God, this day, may we see Christ. May we long for his righteousness. Lord, would you enable us to repentantly persevere God, that we may be imitators of Christ, that we, we may be heirs to his wonderful and magnificent fortune, that which is not tangible by hands, Lord, but that which is spiritually realized in the blood of the precious Lamb of God. Lord, may today be for his exaltation and for your glory alone, O oh Father. We just ask that uh, you would receive this worship, God, that you would continue to create in us clean hearts. God, that you would wash us by the water of the word, that you would cleanse us or grant us remission of sin. And we also ask that you would bless uh, the time of fellowship to come, Lord, and the food that is placed before us. That it would not be used in vain, Lord, but that it would nurture and be palatable unto your people so that it would continue us, Lord, in the body that we may serve you now and eternally. In Jesus' name we pray.